morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? Welcome to KW Redeemer. If this is your first time with us this morning, welcome. We're glad you could join us. And uh, we hope you're encouraged by your time here, and we hope you'll stick around after the service for fellowship um, afterwards um, to give us a chance to get to know you better. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Peter Vlar. I'm a member here at KW Redeemer, and, uh, and I'll be leading us through the, lit- the liturgy this morning, um, along with the help of Rick. Um, and this morning we have the privilege of inviting a guest preacher to our pulpit from New City Church in Hamilton, um, Kevin DeYoung, uh, who's here together with his wife Michelle. Um, which is uh, kind of a surreal thing for me because Kevin and I have a bit of a history together. We worked together at uh, um, a children's summer camp, actually the same camp where my wife and I met. Um, and, uh, and Kevin and I have a bit of a reputation for behaving slightly less than you'd say normal, I think. <laughs> not sure crazy would quite do justice um, to the antics that we got up to. Um, but we had a lot of fun, and I think the kids, kids did too. I think um, one of the things that the children here you might be interested to know um, is that uh, one of Kevin's trademark moves was that he could jump really high. And, uh, and he probably doesn't want me to mention this just because it's something he doesn't want to be defined by, but, um, but he is. And he, uh, he actually, um, <laughs> he was really good at volleyball and was a really high jumper. And he actually jumped over my head, like, I'm like this. And, while standing, it jumped over my head once. I was in his prime. I'm not sure if he can do that. We can demonstrate <laughs> later, maybe. <laughs> it will. Maybe I'm not willing to take that risk anymore. But uh, maybe you can jump over some of the kids when they're playing later on today. So, um, but uh, but so it's 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 great to have uh, have Kevin and Michelle join us today um, and to uh, to share their ministry with us. Um, Kevin and Michelle live and work in downtown Hamilton where they have worshipped at New City for seven years Uh, and Kevin recently graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary um, and is currently a planting intern with the Grace Network and Michelle is a worship leader at New City Church and also works in the healthcare sector. So again, um, we're thankful that uh, that Kevin and Michelle are willing to, uh, to join us this morning. Um, and share with us and let us all uh, stand together now as we open this service in a word of prayer. Almighty Father in heaven, we thank you for dwelling with us. We thank you for this opportunity to come into your house, to rest in you. Open our hearts, Lord, our ears and our eyes to you, that we may know you better. We pray that you'll bless this worship service, O God, and work in us and shape us after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, What Peter said about me is true. What he said about himself was even truer. He was crazy. Probably still is, I don't know. No, he's mellowed. (laughs) Anyways, really happy to be here with you guys. I I just want to thank you for the the opportunity. yeah, really look, looking forward to getting getting to know you guys a little bit more after as well. This morning we're gonna we're gonna be reading from Psalm 56, and um, 
Psalm 56 is written by David, and, and many of us are, we kind of know, we know who David is, um, and we know a lot about him, but before um, we read, I'm just going to kind of tell a little bit of a backstory to, to this psalm. So David was a, a shepherd boy, right? He was the youngest in his family, um, and a shepherd was not really like a high calling. Um, it's kind of like a dirt, like a dirty job. And so, um, but he was fierce, right? We, we also know that he was, he was the youngest in his family. He's kind of like a low standing in society, but he was also a really fierce guy. Like he fought off lions and bears with his bare hands. He was, I guess that's what shepherds did, but that's really fierce. And so, and another thing he did was while his brothers were, were in the army, he visited them once, and, and then he took down this massive giant, this Philistine giant named Goliath um, with a slingshot. And that's kind of a like, big-time story. I'm sure everybody's heard of that story. Um, and so because of what he did, he took down this giant with a slingshot. The king at the time named Saul kind of gave him a high standing in society. Um, and David became a mighty warrior after that. And so the Israelites, they had this song, and, and the, when David would come back, they would be singing the song, like, Saul struck down thousands, but David struck down tens of thousands. They were just singing and dancing, and they're so happy about this, this guy named David. And Saul, he was happy to give David this high standing, but now he's hearing these songs, and he's kind of thinking, He's kind of getting a little bit jealous, thinking, well, what is next? What's next for David? The only place that he can go is, now, is up. He can only be, now become king. That's the, that's the next highest standing. And the people seem to like him more than they like me. So Saul became really jealous, like super jealous, to the point where he wanted to kill David. And so at one point, David um, was kind of in the temple, and he was playing his... Uh, I think it was a lyre, and which is um, kind of like a harp slash guitar thing. I'm not really sure what it is, um, but yeah, we don't use that in worship a lot. But so while he was playing that, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, like he really wanted him dead. Um, but David slipped away, right? He got away, um, and he had to flee. So he had to flee Israel, and he was going to um, the, na- the neighboring nation, uh, Philistia. And that's where Goliath was from. And, you know, the song is that he's killed tens of thousands of these people. And so they don't really like him either, right? So, so here's David. He's running from his number one enemy in life, Saul, and, the, you know, Saul's army. And the only place he's got to go is the Philistine nation, who's his, probably his number two enemy at this point, right? So he has nowhere to go. And on his way, to make things worse, um, he needed some food. So he stopped off in this place called Nob, and he um, got from the, from the priest there, he got some bread from the offering. But he also was like, I don't have a weapon, I need a weapon. Um, and he was like, oh, we have this massive sword from Goliath. It's the only weapon that we have left. So David's like, well, that's a really good weapon. I'll take that. So he's, here he comes walking into the Philistine, into Gath, which is the city of Goliath, with Goliath's sword. And everybody knows the song. It's like, uh, 
yeah, it's not a good situation for him. He's all alone. So he gets taken by the Philistines and brought to their king named Achish. And, and Achish says, isn't this the guy who they sing the songs about? Like he killed tens of thousands of us? And they're like, yeah. So this is kind of exactly where David is um, when this psalm is written, when he writes this psalm, Psalm 56. So he's in the hands of the Philistines, um, all alone, and they know exactly who he is. So if you'd open your Bible or your Bible app, um, and, and we're going to read the passage, and then leave it open. Leave open your Bible um, as we go, because we're going to be referencing it um, multiple times this morning. So Psalm 56, and the title is, To the Choir Master, According to the Dove on Far-Off Terebinths, a Mictam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. It's the word of God. So Psalm 56 teaches us that we can trust that God is near us and that he will deliver us even when our enemies press in. Because his word is sure. Because he promises to deliver his people. And we'll see in this psalm there's a progression from fear to freedom. And we're going to look at it under these three headings. It's going to be fear, and then faith, and then freedom. So fear, faith, and freedom. So the story that I just shared about David is kind of my own summary of what happened in the book of, of 1 Samuel chapters 18 to 21. And as we see from that story and from this psalm that David was very afraid in this situation. He was alone and he was afraid. And he tells us that he was afraid. In, in verse 3, he says, he rehearses that when he is afraid, he trusts God. And in verses 4 and 11, which both kind of act as a refrain or a chorus in this psalm, he also says, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. 
And in the verses in and around these two refrains, we see that David, he's explaining what his enemies are doing. And we know that from the title and and from the story that he's got these two big enemies, right? One is Saul, who's tried to pin him to a wall, and the other one is the Philistine nation, who he's kind of running from Saul towards. And it's clear that David, he's feeling this pressure from all sides. He uses words like, like trample and oppress and injure and lurk. And we know from the story in 1 Samuel that, that David has nowhere to turn. He's literally run from his number one enemy into the hands of his number two enemy, or vice versa. They're both pretty bad enemies. So where does David ultimately turn? We know from this psalm that he ultimately turns to God in prayer. Psalm 56 is the prayer of a man who has nowhere else to turn. And, and there's a lesson there for us. I presume, although, that none of us are um, fleeing from like a, a king who tried to pin us to the wall with a spear um, and then hiding among a nation of people that we've like killed ten thousands. But we do have enemies. We do often feel oppressed. And maybe we're getting walked all over by our boss at work. Or there's been tragedy in our family or in our friend circles. For many of us, our greatest enemy is ourselves. We fight anxiety or depression or the many other thoughts or lies that our brains tell us. And these things weigh us down. And at the core, the Bible tells us that our greatest enemy is sin and death. And David was also fearing that enemy. He was in despair. The only thing he could see was ahead of him was death. He was in the hands of his enemy. And so we learn from David that when we're faced with our enemies, we need to go to God. David knows the Philistines are not going to help him. They're not going to rescue him from Saul. And so he goes to God in prayer. He goes to the one person that he knows can help him. So when you feel surrounded by your enemies, whether it's personal or spiritual or psychological, and these are very real enemies, go to God. Cry out to him for help because he is near and he will help you. But our problem is that we don't often go to the right place for help. It's kind of like, we're kind of like people who, um, our car breaks down. And so we go to the dentist. Right? The dentist knows how to fix teeth. They might be good with a drill, but they don't have the skill set that it takes to fix our car. And we're like that. When it comes to our enemies or the, the web of sin that entangles us, that we cannot escape on our own, the psychological despair that we sometimes feel, God is the one that we ought to go to, just like David did. David approached God in prayer, trusting that God would help. 
and that in this time of trouble, that God had a plan. And so David also exhibited faith. That's the second one, faith. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a refrain in this psalm, both in verse 4 and then verses 10 and 11. And the, the longer one is in 10 and 11. It goes like this. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So there's three parts to this refrain. So first we see that David is declaring that he praises the word of God. And second, he goes on to proclaim that he trusts God. So he praises the word of God and then he trusts God. He trusts, that the, he trusts in the word of God that he praises. And third, he declares that since he trusts God in the word, he doesn't need to be afraid. It ends with this rhetorical question, what can man do to me? Which is kind of crazy because David is in the hands of one enemy. He's run from his number one enemy to his number two enemy. Um, but at the same time, he's, a, he's acknowledging in his prayer that, that God is in control and that he doesn't need to be afraid. But actually at this point, man can do a lot to him. He's at the mercy of his enemies. Yet he knows that he's secure. He knows that God is true to his word. He's got faith. God is trustworthy. And God has made promises to David already in his life that he hasn't seen come to fruition. One of the promises was that David would become king and that his line would become king and that there would be somebody from his line that would be the eternal king. And so I don't know if, we don't know if David actually saw a way out of this situation. But what we do know is that he has faith that no matter what happens, God will be true to his word. So David is trusting that God will follow through on his promises in his moment of deep pain and distress. In a similar way, we're also called to trust God in great times of oppression. But the question is, what does this trust look like? What is it about God that we're supposed to trust? David had promises from God that he hadn't seen come to light, and so he trusted that God would bring these things to fruition. But what are we being called to trust? Look at verse 9. David makes a clear statement of faith. He says, This I know, that God is for me. We are to trust that God is for us. God is on our side. And how do we know this? How do we know that God is on our side? I think we know this because of his track record. I did a little bit of research because uh, trying to be like contextualization. So I know that in Kitchener this fall, you guys have uh, your municipal elections. And we have it in Hamilton as well, so we're kind of going through the same thing. Um, but in an election, when you're choosing who to vote for, how do you... How do you decide? How do you choose who to vote for? Usually you look at the person's track record. You look at whether they're trustworthy. And so you look at what they've done, 
what kind of achievements they have to their name. And this is similar with God. We can know that he is on our side because of what he has done in Christ. In Christ, God faced our worst enemies, sin and death, and he defeated them. In Christ, God stooped low and he became man and he went face to face with Satan. And he was tortured and he was killed even though he was innocent. And he willingly did these things for you. To pay for your and my sin. And then he rose from the grave after being dead for three days to conquer the enemy of death. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father with a human body advocating and reconciling you who were once far off to God. This is what we're called to trust. That Christ has gone ahead of us and he has secured our salvation by his death and resurrection. And we trust that although we cannot earn it on our own, our, re our salvation and our standing with God is secure because of Christ. So place your faith in this Christ. Place your faith in God. This is what we're called to do. David most likely did not see a way out of his current situation. And yet he had faith that God would deliver him. We are to do the same, trusting in God, believing that, believing in his finished work. This is, it's not something that we can do only when we have our house in order. Right? We see that David was in the most tumultuous time of his life. He did not have his house in order, and yet he cried out to God, trusting that God would deliver him. So no matter what storm you find yourself in today, place your faith in the finished work of Christ. Find rest in him so you can move from faith to free, or fear to freedom. And so let's talk about that freedom. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. First, David promises that, there's kind of two things we're going to look at. First, he promises that he will bring a thank offering to God. And uh, a thank offering is kind of a special sacrifice that the Israelites would bring to God, um, whether for like a general um, salvation or a, a general deliverance or a specific one. And so in this case, David was going to give God a uh, was promising to give God a specific uh, sacrifice of thanksgiving because he was planning on being delivered from this situation. He's vowing to give God a thank offering once he's delivered. And so we can see here that he has this sh sureness about it that he's going to be rescued from this situation. And after Christ... Now, here and now, we're not called to, to give God, to worship God with animal sacrifices in the same way that the Israelites did or grain sacrifices. 
Um, because Jesus was the true sacrifice that all those other sacrifices pointed to. And so in Christ, it's done. We don't, we don't need to offer those sacrifices pointing to his, self, to his sacrifice. But like Jesus gave his whole life for us, we can also give our whole lives back to him in thanks. The book of Romans is, is written by Apostle Paul, and it's 16 chapters long. And the first 11 chapters explain this salvation that we have, this free gift of grace. Paul explains in great detail the free gift of salvation offered to us in Christ. He says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by our own works. And then in, cha- in the last few chapters, chapters 12 to 16, He gives us this application. It's like, okay, we're saved by grace alone, and now what? For what? Now what do we do? And he begins right in chapter 12 with this idea of a thank offering. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Just as David vows to give a thank offering for his deliverance, we are called to give our lives as a living sacrifice, allowing the Spirit of God to fill us in daily repenting and placing our faith in Jesus Christ, loving one another and showing Jesus to each other. And the second thing that David says is that God has delivered his soul from death, He's in a tight spot. He's in the hands of his enemy, and yet he knows that his soul is safe. He's confident of this. That he will walk before God in the light of life. He says that, in the light of life. And notice that David has this idea of being rescued for a purpose. That he will walk before God in the light of life. He says that God has delivered him so that he may walk before God in the light of life. David may be referring to walking before God in glory, like after he's died, um, but it doesn't seem to make sense because he's also promised to make this thank offering to God. So it seems like David knows that God is going to deliver him from this situation. David is acknowledging that, that God saves us for a purpose that we can walk in the light of life here and now. And what does it mean to be walking in the light of life? What is the light of life? In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Having the light of life means that we're following Jesus and we're being obedient to his call. For us, this is it's kind of like the idea of living your best life now. Have you ever heard people say that? All kind of like our self-help gurus and, uh, and, and authors. Um, they want to help us live our best life now. And the psalm is saying that, and Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying that this is your best life now. Laying down your selfish desires and your plans at the foot of the cross, and giving yourself as a living sacrifice to God, that is your best life now. His purpose is that we abide in him. 
believe in him for our salvation, and proclaim his name among the nations. Being a part of him, of what he's doing here, making all things new. Starting where you are right now. So living in the light of life is not a private matter, right? Light can't hide. We're saved for a purpose, to go into our places of influence, into our work, or into our families, or into our schools, or into our neighborhoods, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, of salvation through Christ alone. So maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling really broken down. You're in a place of despair. You feel like your enemies, they've got you, just like David. And there's no way out of this mess that you're in. Maybe it's a particularly bad season of depression or of, or of anxiety or family turmoil or, or pain or sickness or loss. You're, ex- you're experiencing the depths of hopelessness and despair. David says in verse 8 that, that God has kept a hold of his tears in a bottle. Imagery here is that God is right there beside David. He's right there with David. As David is in the depths of despair, the Lord is right there collecting his tears. He remembers and he sees your pain. And he's not just collecting your tears so that he can remember your pain or measure it to say, okay, that's, that's enough or... Oh no, that's not enough. Kevin, you need to keep you need to cry more. God is collecting your tears so that he can one day wipe them all away. The book of Revelation chapter 7, we get a glimpse into heaven because of a dream that the apostle John had. And in this chapter, we see a multitude of people worshiping from all nations before the throne of God. And it is explained to John that this is the church. These are God's people. These are the people that God has gathered to himself. And the elder explaining this to John goes on to say that God will shelter these people with his presence. And they shall never be hungry or thirsty again. They will not be burnt by the sun. They will not feel scorching heat. And Jesus, the lamb, will be their shepherd guiding them to springs of living water. And then the elder says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God will wipe away every tear. He's collecting your tears in his bottle so that one day when Christ comes again, he can wipe them all away. God is for us. His word is sure. He will one day wipe away every tear. And you are safe in him. Just like David was sure of his salvation out of this horrible, horrible situation, because he was sure of God's promises to him, we can be sure of our salvation in Christ because it is done. Jesus conquered our greatest enemies, sin and death. Let's pray.